Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to attempt to bring to an end today our study of this subject of tithing. And I'm not going to go back over all the things that we've touched about before other than to say this, that this subject has much more to do than money. Tithing is really not about money. It involves money, but it does involve, it's about so much more than money. It really is involved in who God is in our lives. Not just who God is, but who God is in our lives. What place He has in our lives. Is He the source of all that we have and need? I mean, He is, but is He, is he that to us? Is he, is he first place in our lives? Because it's really easy to say that on a Sunday morning. It's really easy to sing it. It's easy to sing, O Lord God Almighty, holy is the Lord. It's easy to sing that, and it's fine to do that, and we should do that, and it stirs up emotion. But the reality of where He is in our life is measured by certain things God's given us to do. And we need to be willing to be honest to look at those things, because God's not condemning us, God's not judging us. He's a Father who will love us and correct us. And the beginning of correction is to find out where you are. Because if we're right all the time, then you're your own God. If you're right all the time, then nobody can correct you. And God had a people that were like that. The Israelites. And the term He uses, they were stiff-necked. They wouldn't bend their neck to Him. They They were unteachable. God's amazingly patient. And amazingly gracious and amazingly loving. As long as we're open and teachable, that means willing to look honestly at ourselves. And by the way, you're usually the last person to find out what you're doing. God certainly knows. And most of the time, the people around you, they already know and have been probably trying to tell you. So we're usually the last to find out. And it says in James chapter uh, 1, I think it is, that that if we refuse, if if we read the truth, but we're not willing to change to the truth, then we become self deceived. It's bad enough to end up in deception, it's so much worse if you did it to yourself. The people that God sent Ezekiel to, imagine, you know, called into your prophet. God says, you're my prophet. You're my hand to the people. You're my voice to the people. Oh, by the way, when you preach, they won't listen to you. He says, because they are like a people that comes to hear wonderful words, and they leave and say, how wonderful was that message, but they have no intent on applying it in their lives. I had no intention going this direction at all this morning. But the significance of this subject of tithing is it is a window into our heart. It's a window into our heart to see where God really is in our life, who He really is to us. And I believe God wants to open our hearts to see where He is to us so that we can allow Him to be so much more in our lives, to put Him in the rightful place that belongs to Him. Because when I've found when He's in that place, everything falls into order. When he's not in that place, I don't care how hard you try, it's out of order. Amen. And so that's really what's underneath this subject. It's not because the church needs more money. The church is doing very well financially. Thank you and thank God. But it is. We're doing well, as well as we've ever done. In a time of very great difficulty, but then again, the church ties. We do what we teach to do. And so that's what we've been looking at. 
So we've looked at the subject of, you know, what the right attitude towards tithing is, you know, that it's not a tax. God's not, it's not a cost of being a Christian because otherwise, you know, it would be taken, like the government takes it out of your salary. That's a tax. But this is something God entrusts to us to give back to him. We saw the fact that it's always his anyway. We looked at the fact that, that, that the principle of tithing, and the principle of tithing is basically based on the principle of the tree in the garden. It's to let us know, remind us, that everything, nothing do, that we have belongs to us because we didn't create any of it. That God's the source of everything that we have, and God owns everything we have, but he entrusts it to us as stewards over it, and the first tenth he wants back, he entrusts to us, it belongs to him all along, to give back to him as an act of worship. And it's our reminder every week or every month or however often you receive your income. It's a reminder of that fact that I don't own any of this. And we saw the fact that, that the tithe is holy and what that meant. The word holy there means it's something God has chosen to belong especially to him for his purposes. And so that first tenth God has said, that's mine. I want that because it's mine. I'm holy. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. All right, I'm on. Uh, uh, it's holy to me, and therefore we treat it not as something I've got to do, but as something I am privileged to be able to do, to worship God with it. Today we're going to get into the side of this, which is where, where, where God tells us there's a side that he will now do. We're dealing with this last because we get the attitude sometimes that, that okay, if I tie, this is what God's promised to do. But we spend all this time focusing on our side of it to make sure our attitude is right, to make sure the preparation is right, and the foundation is right. But there are certain promises God has made to us if we will do what He says. He doesn't, he doesn't do these things as a reward for what we says. It's a response to what we've done to Him. We saw in the beginning in Genesis 14 that, that, that Abraham was met by this priest Melchizedek and who he is, and I'm not going to go back through that whole explanation again. But we saw that with it, Abraham had a revelation that the God who has blessed him with all the things he had, who he was, he was the Most High God. He was the possessor of heaven and earth. He was the deliverer from all Abraham's enemies, and he was the one who had come to bless him. Abram's response to seeing that about his God was to give him the first tenth of everything that back the first tenth of everything God had given to him. It was Abraham, it was a response to seeing who God is. Well, these promises we're going to look at are God's response back to us, to us responding to him. It's all out of relationship. It's not a series of laws and obligations. It's a relationship of giving and receiving and of trusting and of honoring and respecting and reverencing. And as we do that, God opens his heart to respond back to us. Proverbs chapter 3. We're just going to go quickly through some of these, and then we're going to talk about a particular aspect of it. Of course, we're all familiar with verses you know, 3 and 4 and 5, about trusting the Lord with all your heart. But verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruit of your increase. That's the tithe. Honor the Lord with it. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase, so that your barns may be full with plenty and your vats overflowing with new wine. In other words, as we honor God first with the tithe, what that's doing is putting Him 
first place in our hearts. And as he's first place in our hearts, he's in that place he's wanted to be where he becomes our source. He is our source, but when we're running around trying to be our own source, then he can't be the, the, he can't be the expression of that source. He can't fulfill what he wants to do as long as we're running around trying to do it ourselves. But when we come to that place of putting Him first, trusting Him first, and acting on that by bringing the tithe to Him and honoring Him with it, now we've put Him in that place where He can now fill your barns. He can now fill your needs. All right. Malachi chapter 3. And there are many more than these. I'm just going to give you a few. We talked about Malachi 3, where God says, that we've robbed him with tithes and offerings. And we talked about the fact that he robbed him means that the money, it was his, not ours. You can only rob somebody of something that belongs to them. But we're going to go down to verse 10 because there's a promise that follows this. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Try me or test me or prove me. God's challenging you. Bring the tithes into the storehouse. We've talked about that that's your church, your home church that there may be food in my house. This is his house. And try me, test me, prove me, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Not the windows of Bank of America. Not the windows of the local credit union. Not so you can get a good loan. God says, prove me. See what I'll do. If I won't open the windows of heaven my windows, and pour out on you, not dispense. Do you ever have to put some, uh, some, some uh, medicine in your eye? And you, you, know, you, you pay all this money for this prescription, it's this tiny little bottle, and you have to take the top off, and you've got to do this. That's the most awkward thing in the world, probably next to putting contact in, which I've never figured out to do and never tried. But putting drop, trying to to keep your eye open against this very instinct, which is to close, because it doesn't want something foreign in there, but you've got to put the thing foreign in there, because that's what's going to make the eye better. So you've got to do this. You you notice they don't give you a pitcher to do that? A pitcher that you pour milk in? It's a little dropper, right? Because you, you can get too much in there. If they gave you a pitcher, not picture, pitcher. <laughs> if they gave you a, 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 a jug, <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to drench yourself with it. Your eyes going to get full. You won't be able to see. So they give you something that can give a controlled amount, just what's needed. But I think sometimes we think that's what God does with us. We go to him with a need and we think God goes to his medicine cabinet and pulls out this little container to meet your need and says, well, I don't want to give them too much, you know. It may go to their head. (laughs) No, he says, see if I will not open the windows of heaven, not window, windows of heaven, and pour out on you. We're talking about God's windows now. We're talking about God's source of supply. God's saying, look, this is my idea. You come and challenge me on this. Well, I've got to be respectful. He's saying to do it. See, because if you've already brought the tithe, you already are honoring him. 
So your heart's already right towards him. But now he's saying, when your heart's like that, you have a right. In fact, I'm calling you to come and challenge me. See if I won't do this. See if I won't open my windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing that you can't possibly contain. That's the same God that in Ephesians chapter 3 says, I can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can think or ask. So that when you come to the end of what you can think and you come to the end of what you can ask, that's where God's abundance begins. Let's look at another scripture. Let's go over to, um, to Luke chapter 6. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That sounds like an abundance, doesn't it? Give, and it will be given to you. Not might, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will it be put into your bosom. That's your heart or your wallet, basically. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's a New Testament promise. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we could cover more, because, but I want to address a particular issue in here. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say to you, he who, spows, who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So it's up to you. I always look at it this way. You can either use a thimble or a shovel, but whatever you use is what God's going to use back to you. He'll use his thimble or his shovel. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Look at this, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. We've talked about the fact that grace doesn't just mean, it's, un, it's always God's unmerited favor. But it's not just God's unmerited favor to get us saved. It's whatever you need. Whatever God brings to you and gives to you, you didn't merit. So it's all His unmerited favor. But sometimes His unmerited favor is in the form of strength. Sometimes it's great, it's wisdom. It's an ability to do something you need to do that's beyond your ability. That's grace also. So in this case, grace is referring to a financial need that you have that God is going to answer as an act of His unmerited favor. So grace is not just getting saved. It's an example of it. It's an instance of it. God is able. God is able. God is able. God is able. He's more able than you are. He's more able than I am. God is able to make all grace, all grace, all of His ability that you didn't earn, God is able to make all of His ability that you didn't earn abound towards you. That you may having all sufficiency in all things, in any situation that you get into in life. There's always this fear, well, I don't know if I'm going to have enough for this. God's Word says, His promise to you 
is if you will flow in this, He's able to make all of His unmerited ability abound to you in every situation. In every situation. Always having all sufficiency in all things that you might have an abundance for every good work. Well then let me ask you this question. If God says that I'll fill your barns and your storehouses, if God says I'll open the windows of heaven, prove me, see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out on me a blessing that I cannot contain. If God says, give and it will be given unto you. Not it might, it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. If God says, if you, if you give, then I'm going to make all of my ability freely available to you so that you have all sufficiency and every need enough so that you can give beyond that to every good work that comes along. If that's what God's promised back, why don't we have it? So the title of today's message is, Yes, Pastor, but why is it not working? I've told you as we began this series, I really felt that God's directing it at three groups of people. First of all, there's some of you out there that have just never done this. You've just, you really didn't hear about it. You didn't know what it is. This is. You may have heard the word, but you didn't understand it. And so you've never, quote, unquote, tried it. There are others among us that have, that have done it before, but because of whatever reason, financial pressures now, you may have lost a job or, or, or whatever, or you just get lazy or, you know, we're human. And we've just stopped doing it, and now it's, uh, I've got to start over again. And then there's some that just say, nah, I can't do that, or I won't do that. Today we're talking to the people that says, yes, I've tried that. But it's just not working. I look at my life and I don't see the barns full. I look at my life and I've been tithing. I look at my life, I don't see the barns full. I look at my life and I don't, I, don't, I don't see things running over in my life. In fact, I see things running out. I see just the opposite. I want to talk for a few minutes about that. I can't tell you that I have your answer today. I can tell you this, God does. Amen. And as we share some thoughts with you, I trust in God's going to show you the day or, or, or later what it is. And then I want to end with some testimonies of some people that started with nothing. And some of these names you're going to recognize. And the only reason they got to where they were was they learned to tithe and tithe faithfully. And it wasn't always easy. It didn't happen overnight. But you're going to recognize some of these names. Some of you may not. And then I want to share... Three testimonies out of what we've received here because they cover three different categories. So why is it not working? I can tell you with absolute certainty one reason that doesn't apply. And that's this. It's not because God has failed. It's not because you can't trust God's word. It's not because the word we've now studied and learned isn't the truth. Because the Bible says, God's not a man that he should lie. 
Numbers 23, 19. Nor the Son of Man that he should repent. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass? Right in Malachi, it says, God cannot lie. The reason God cannot lie is John 17, 17. Jesus says, Thy word is truth. Truth is whatever comes out of God's mouth. You don't take what God says and measure it against some independent thing called the truth. That's what you do with my word and your word. But truth is whatever God says. So when God says, given it shall be given unto you, that's truth. So what that means automatically is I can't pull away from God and get mad at God because He's not doing His part. Because if that's true, if God's failed here, then how do we know God hasn't failed in other areas? If I can't trust God's word here, how do I know I can trust God's word when he says, you must be born again? How do I know I can trust any of that word if I can't trust one part of that word? So if you start picking and choosing what you can trust, you may fool your rational mind, but somewhere underneath you're undermining your confidence in all of that word. So the beginning is to realize the, the, the issue is never with God. God always does what He says. God always does what He says. Now we don't like that sometimes because there's only one other place to look. See, so if, if something's broken down here, it's very easy to blame God because that way I never have to look at me. But remember, one of the reasons for this whole study we're going through is this whole question of tithing, this whole subject of tithing is a mirror into me. It's a mirror into my heart. It's a mirror into my life where God's opening me up, putting a window in here where we can look inside and we can, he and I can look in there, of course he already knows, and see what really is going on in my heart. So that leads me to the first reason why it might not be working. Sometimes God uses finances as a way of getting our attention. He did that with Israel. When Israel would rebel against him and would not respond and he'd send prophets, things would dry up. Droughts would occur. I don't believe God does that. God will take his hand off of things. God will take his hand off of things. So one of the reasons may be there's something God's trying to get your attention about. Because understand this, although we may be acting out and paying the tithe, the attitude might not be right. There may be something else wrong inside that God wants to get our attention about. And I don't know about you, but human nature is I probably do know about you. Human nature is that when things are not going right and we really get in a tight squeeze, that's when we get on our knees and begin to ask questions. It's not God's best. God would much rather have us come to Him and say, Lord, is everything right? And He's able to say, no, you need to make this adjustment and then everything just flows. But we don't always do that. We may do it outwardly, but we really don't mean it sometimes inwardly. So, so what the beginning is to recognize, wait a minute, the problem is not because God's not doing His promise. The problem is not that I can't trust this word. Somewhere, something's off here. 
Now, another trap people make. Yeah, but pastor, you don't understand. You know, yes, you were a lawyer, you know, and you came from a family that, you know, you wasn't poor and you had yeah, I, yeah, but I know of a pastor. This worked in a jungle. It worked in a jungle. I said it worked in a jungle. I know people in Mexico where we've gone. This works for them. And they didn't have the background I had or the resources that I had because it works because God's word says so, because of who God is. We come up with excuses. Remember, God said, I will open my windows. Second reason, sin in our lives. Now, I'm not saying we've got to go on some great witch hunt and tear our lives apart. And say, Maybe this isn't right. Usually we know because the Spirit of God's already been knocking in there saying, mm, you know you shouldn't be doing that. You know you shouldn't be going there. How can you live in outright rebellion against things God's Word says? Like living together as if you're a husband and wife, but never having entered into the covenant of marriage in God's eyes? How can you do that and then expect God to open the windows of heaven and bless what you're doing? So sin in our lives, especially known sin, where, uh, you know, well, Pastor, what you, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you know what I'm talking about, that may well be the issue in your life. So it can just be, you know, God's there's something God wants to get my attention about. And when you make that adjustment, God's word will flow. Remember, he's a father. He's a father correcting us because he loves us and wants to bless us and wants to take care of us and wants to provide for us and wants to cause us to, to grow and mature. But we have to cooperate with him. We have to cooperate with him. So sin. Sin. You don't hear a lot about that in the church anymore, but there's a lot about it in the Bible. Sin can stop the promise of God becoming real in our lives. Another reason can be just the wrong motive, a wrong attitude about giving. We've talked a lot about attitude. We've talked a lot about motive. We talked about being casual about it, becoming what I call bucket plunkers. And I have to fight against this because we're busy on a Sunday morning. You know, you just come and say, well, all right, we've got to write the tie check out. We've got to write the tie check out. And, you know, put it in the, in the envelope and put it in the bucket when it comes by. You know, and just forget what we're doing. There's times God calls us back to remember, why are you doing that? Just like Jesus told the church in Revelation, you're doing every, a lot of good things, but you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten why we do this. You've forgotten what this is all about. So it's calling us back to, our, oh, yes, 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 yes. I love you, Lord. You've, you've provided everything I have. You've been so good to me. I want to honor you this morning with the first tenth of what you've, you've brought into my life and worship you with it. You make those corrections and adjustments. The last reason I'm going to get into before I share a story and then get into the testimonies is I think in most cases what it really is. And sometimes it's because we don't know any better and sometimes it's because we forget. 
there's a side of interacting with God where, well, it's the way you got saved. God made a promise that if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. God sent, for who, let's put it this way, <clears throat> the way, for God so loved the, the world, not just you or me or Faith Christian Center, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, then how come everybody's not blessed and saved? God gave his son for the world so that the world might be... Why do we have to have the 99 come in? Why do we have to do things? How come if God gave his son, so loved the world that he gave his son for the world's sins, how come everybody's not saved? Oh, there's more to the verse. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a side of everything with God that's our side that simply is required in order to receive what God's giving. And that's faith. We have to believe what God's giving. So you you can be giving the tithe. You can be sowing seed. But if you're not believing what these promises are, you're not in a position to receive them back. And what is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. But basically what faith is, is believing God's word is the truth because he said it, and the proof that I believe it is I begin to act as if it's a reality in my life now. Because we've studied on Wednesday nights before that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So there's a difference between faith and and hope. Hope is future-oriented. Hope is always, I, you know, this is going to happen. Hope is something looking down the road, and faith is what makes you believe that that's so real that you can, it's, it's as if it were yours now. Everybody with me so far? But that applies when it comes to receiving the benefit of these promises back. So there's a side that we have to play which is to, so you need to ask yourself, if you're one of those people this morning says, but I've, I've been doing that, now, you know, understand if you started last week, <laughs> remember, this is not like a vending machine. Where you say, okay, I put my tithe in up here, and let's see, I want, um, I need a job, so that's B3. <laughs> so I'll push B3 this week, and that's to put my tithe in the next week, and let's see, well, yeah, we, uh, we need, a, we need, you're a little behind on the house mortgage. So that's C4, and I push that. You know, when you get down and you, oh, yeah, here's the job and here's the house money. That's one of the attitudes that will cause it not to work. There's no relation. You don't, can't have a relationship with a vending machine. You can't trust vending machines. <laughs> <laughs> And some of you may felt like you put your money in and it didn't come out and you want to shake the vending machine. <laughs> and here's always the way you know why you're doing it, that it's off. But I did what I was supposed to do and God, you've not done what you're supposed to do. Then most likely my motive was to earn something from Him. Because you know when that's your motive because you get frustrated because you didn't receive it. 
Now, frustrated is one thing. That's okay, because that will cause you to look for answers. But you get mad back at him. Ask Job, because he did that. All right. Let's move along here. Another thing is you can't try this. You can't try it. Peter tried walking on water. It worked for a while. It's a commitment you make. It's a commitment. It's a crossing a line where you say, I'm no longer my source. My job's no longer my source. God's now my source. I'm now trusting completely in Him. That's an act of your will. It's an act of obedience. It's a commitment you make. So you can't try it. It's like Peter sitting on the side of the boat putting his foot over on the water saying, I'm walking on water. That's not walking on water. He's still trusting in the boat. See, as long as you've got another way out, you're still sitting on the side of the boat with your feet on the water. And that's what some of you are doing. You say, well, I'm giving the 10%, but your trust is still in you. You've still got a way out. So your feet are over the side of the boat. They're wet. So you can show them to me and say, see, I got my feet wet. See, I'm doing it. But what's your heart trusting in? Because sitting on the side of the boat, his weight's still on the support of that boat, not on Jesus' word come. You know Peter walked on the word come. He didn't walk on water. Because Jesus said come, Peter trusted in that enough to take his weight off the boat and on the word come. The problem is he got his eyes off the word come and that's when he began to sink. All right. I want to tell you a story about a man. We're going to go over into uh, Genesis. This man's name is Jacob. I love this story. And, and, and sometime I'll take a whole s- service and, and go through this because there's so much in here. But I believe it speaks to what we're talking about. Abraham's son was Isaac, the one he believed God for, the one God is the child of the promise. But then Isaac got married, and his wife was barren. We're going to start in chapter 25, quickly. Verse 21. And Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled within her, and she said, If all is well, then why am I like this? In other words, if if they're healthy, why is this struggle going on? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people will be stronger than the other. And this is the significant thing. The older will serve the younger. Now in that culture, in that generation, and really up until recently, the law of the land was that the firstborn had a birthright that was above that of everyone else. And in the legal jurisdiction, it was called the law of autoprimogenitor, which means the firstborn child basically received everything, and there were other things that the other children would get. But the, the ownership of the land, the authority, the head position, all of that went to the firstborn. And so what God is saying to the mother here, while they're still in the womb, you can see this discussed in Romans 9, while they're still in the womb, God's saying, I've chosen the second one to be ruler over the first one. In other words, I as an act of my sovereignty am reversing that for them. She heard that before they were ever born. What happens, of course, is the boys are born. One of them is Esau. He was ruddy. He was, you know 
red skin. He was a, he was a man's man. He was a macho guy. He was a hunter. He was a fisherman. He was, he liked to live out in the woods and out in the fields, you know. And his father was, he was his father's favorite because his father liked the, the spicy food that he would fix. He liked the hot sauce, Pastor Michael. Yeah. All right. And so he would, you know, this was his father's pride and joy. Jacob, the second born, was mama's boy. The New King James says he was mild. I can only imagine what that must have meant. He was fair-skinned. He was, you know, he was, the, he was, he was genteel. He was, you know, he was, he was not the rough, rough he was man, manly guy that his father loved. So his mother liked him better. But remember what God said. God said the older is going to serve the younger. God told the mother that. The boys grow up. What happens is, is Esau's been out hunting, doing his thing. He comes home, and there's no food. Jacob's been cooking. Got one of his latest recipes. He's been cooking, and, and Esau looks at that, and he's hungry. He thinks, I'm going to die. And Esau, or J- Jacob, says, you want a bite? And Esau says, oh, yeah, man, I'll do anything for it. Oh, anything for it, Really? Tell you what, I'll sell it for you. Don't have any cash on me. No, but you got something I would do want. I want your birthright. So Esau said, I'll do anything for it. Here, my birthright's yours. Give me the porridge. A little later on, their father's getting older and he can't see as well. And he says, I really want, I really want some of my oldest son's best food. You know, got good gamey food. So he sends him out to get some. And mom sees, here's the chance. So she pulls Jacob over. She says, the fa- your father's about to hand down the blessing. He's about to transfer ownership of everything. All right? When your brother comes back, he's going to give it to you. So here's what you need to do. You need to go cook some savory food that your brother would cook and bring it to your father and pretend your fa- you're your father's oldest son. And then he'll give you the blessing. And he says, she says, because he he's, can't see very well, so he'll mistake you. She says, but yeah, but he might reach out and touch me and realize I'm not hairy like my brother and think that I'm trying to deceive him. Well, of course, that's exactly what he's trying to do. And so, so her mother, his mother gets even, she says, all right, here's what we'll do. We'll take some animal skins and we'll glue them, we'll stick them on you so that if your father does that, you can put that out and he can touch it and he can say, oh, it is Esau. And then he'll eat the food, put his hands on you and give the blessing. And that's exactly what happened. Now listen to this situation here. This is fits in what we're talking about. God had already said, as far as I'm concerned, that second child is the one that I'm going to put in charge of everything. The mother had the promise. She had God's word of what God promised he was going to do. Undoubtedly, she had to have told Jacob. But having God's promise of what God would do she still took it into her own hands to make provision for her son that she loved to get into the position God had already promised. So instead of taking God at His word and believing His promise, she may have said that outwardly, but inside she didn't believe it, so she tried to make it happen with His help. By the way, when he was born, came out of her womb, Esau came out first. Jacob came out second. 
reaching out to get a hold of his brother's hand, the idea was to pull his brother back so that he came out first. So even at birth, that instinct was in him because that instinct is in our fallen nature. That instinct to promote ourselves, provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, everything for ourselves, that's ingrained in our fallen nature. And here comes, it shows you that children aren't just born as sweet little angelic things. This child was coming out of the womb trying to get in line ahead of his brother. The name Jacob, by the way, means trickster or supplanter. That means somebody who butts ahead in line, moves the people out in front of you, moves the people out. See, that's what our corporate world is based on, getting a hold of the person in front of you and getting, taking their place and getting ahead of them. We talked about that when we talked about the principles of the kingdom. So here's what happened. Esau comes back finds out his father gives the blessing to his younger son, Jacob, which is what God intended anyway, but God wanted to do it his way by trusting him instead of taking it into their own hands. Jacob now discovers, uh, he's, Isaac discovers that he's been fooled and tricked. Esau is devastated. But of course, then he sold his birthright to begin with. Esau is devastated by all this. Now what happens is Esau begins to hate Isaac. So Isaac now, now he's going to bear the fruit of doing this himself. Isaac now has to leave home. I'm sorry, Jacob has to leave home. And so they send him out, and they send him to Mama's uncle, if I remember correctly, Laban. On the way, Jacob has an experience with God. Let's go over to um, Genesis 28. Now he looks like he's lost everything. Everything he thought he did on his own. Everything he thought he had. He had his father's property. He had his father's authority. Now he's got to leave home. He's by himself. And that's often when God... He's lost everything. God, it's not working. You promised me that I would be in charge of all this. And now I don't have any of it. Well, if he'd trusted God, he would have had it all at that time. So now God has to do a work in him. God has to do a work on the inside of him. So he's lost everything. He's he's evicted from his house. He's he's estranged from his family. His brother hates him, gunning for him. And he's now sent to live with Uncle Laban. On the way... Verse 10, Jacob went down from Beersheba and went as far as Haran, Haran. And he came to the place where he stayed all night because of the sun had set. And he took there one of the stones of that place and put it on his head and lay down to that place to go to sleep. And there he dreamed. What's going to happen here? God's going to reveal himself to Jacob. Remember Abraham's response with the tithe was because Melchizedek revealed who God was and something about God. Now, Jacob only knows about him through his mother, most likely, but God is going to reveal himself to him directly. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abram, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. And also your descendants will shall be the dust of the earth. He's re 
He's, he's reaffirming the covenant commitment he made to Abraham, his grandfather, and that he made to his father. And he's making this directly to Isaac now, to Jacob now himself. Jacob, verse 16, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. We could preach that for a while. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There's none like this in the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose early in the morning and took the same stone that he put under his head, set up a pillar, poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of this place Bethel. But the name of the place of that city had formerly called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, in other words, if God will do what he said he did, will do, and keep me in the way that I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to eat, put on, then I will come back to my father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. That was his response now to see. So God's beginning to reveal himself to Jacob, that he's his source, he's his provision, he's made a promise, and Jacob just needs to believe him directly. And Jacob's, this is conditional on Jacob's part at this point. If you'll do what you say, then I'll give you a tenth of it. Now what happens is he ends up with his uncle Laban and he begins to reap a little bit of what he's sown. Because Laban's a little bit of a deceiver himself. So he falls in love with his beautiful daughter. And he says, I'll work for you. What do I have to do? He says, you've got to work for me for seven years. He says, ah, she's so gorgeous. And the seven years went by like that. He wanted her so bad. So they come down to the wedding, you know, and they have the wedding feast, you know, the wedding, you know, and the wedding night. And he gets up the next morning. He rolls over when the sun comes up and says, whoa, you're not the daughter I thought I married. This is Leah. So he goes to his uncle Laban and says, what's going on here? He says, oh, I forgot to tell you something. Just a little, a little, a little footnote in our law here. The, the, the oldest daughter has to get married first. So I knew, since you wanted the second one so much, you'd marry her first. And then, well, what do I got? You got to serve another seven years. What's happening? He's reaping what he's sown. This goes on for 21 years. And he finally says, I've had it. I'm out of here. There's no way you're going to ever give me what I'm supposed to have. So on his way back, he now realizes he can only go home. He's got nowhere to go now. He can't stay there. So he has to go home. It's better at home. So he's going home. And on his way home, he realizes, my brothers may be coming out to meet me because he's going to hear this. By the way, he's got loads of things now. He's got a whole family, blah, 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 wise. He's doing, he's doing, God has blessed him. He gets to the place. He says, you know what? Here's what I think I need to do. I need to send all of my goods on ahead. Then I need to send my family on ahead. And so he was left alone, just where God wanted him. Turn with me to Genesis 32. See, it wasn't working. It's beginning to work, but he still doesn't have the peace. Genesis 32. They've all gone ahead of him, verse 22. Then he arose at night, 
took his two wives, his two male servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over in the fort. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. And Jacob was left alone. That's often where God needs to get us. That's often where God needs to get us. He didn't have his stuff with him. He didn't have his family with him. He was just Jacob. Jacob was left alone, and a man came and wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Remember God said, test me and prove me? Argue with me, he says in, in, in Isaiah. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, when the man saw, when this, this is an angel, saw that Jacob did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, the socket of his hip was out, Jacob's hip went out of joint, and he still wrestled with him. In other words, no obstacle was stopping Jacob now. This wrestling with this angel was pulling out of Jacob what was really down inside of him. And the angel wouldn't give up. Verse 26, and he said, let me go. The angel said, because the day's breaking. The sun's coming up. The angel's saying, let me go, let me go, let me go. Now this is the supplanter. The trickster. Has a hold of God. God's representative. And he said, but I will not let you go, let you go unless you bless me. That's what he was trying to get out of him. You're my source. I've got a hold of God now. I'm not letting you go until you do what you said you'd do. No longer is he looking to his mother, his father, his brother, Laban, his uncle. He's no longer going to look at himself. He's got a hold of God. He says, you promised me what you'd do, and I'm not letting you go until you bless me. That's faith. Look what happens. Verse 27. So the angel said to him, uh, What's your name? Imagine how embarrassing this is. My name's Trickster. My name's Supplanter. That's what he's saying. What's your name? Jacob, Trickster, Supplanter. Verse 28. He said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. See, a change has happened. But your name shall be Israel which means prince with God. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Isn't it interesting that from that time on, the people that God called have been given the name that was given to Him. Israel is not the name of a nation. Israel is the name of a man from whom that nation came. A man who was a prince of God. Some translations say a man who prevailed with God. See the change that took place in him? God was working with him all the time to bring that change about because he was trusting in everything else but God's promise directly that God was his source. I want to take a few minutes now and I really want to read some of these testimonies to you in the time that we have left. Because these are examples, these are all, as the story of this began, um, I got these from the, uh, a Bible software that I have. And, and there's one in the beginning that says, you know, it's commonly thought that, that only, only wealthy people tithe. But these are all people that at the time they began tithing were broke. And we're going to see some of them were very much in debt. I'm going to read through these somewhat quickly. 
H.P. Cromwell, affectionately known as the autocrat of the breakfast table, contracted tuberculosis when he was a boy and he couldn't go to school. After hearing a sermon by Dwight L. Moody, young Kroll prayed, I can't be a preacher, but I could be a good businessman. God, if you will let me make money, I will use it in your service. Under the doctor's advice, Kroll worked outdoors for seven years and regained his health. Then he brought a little rundown mill at Ravana, Ohio. Within ten years, this Quaker Oats mill was a household word to millions. And Kroll also operated the huge Perfection Stove Company. For, for over 40 years, Henry P. Kroll faithfully gave 60 to 70% of his income to God's causes, having advanced from his initial 10%. Next story. A lad of 16 years named William left home to seek his fortune. All his possessions were tied in a bundle, carried in his hand. He met an old canal boat captain. William told him his father was too poor to keep him, and the only trade that he knew was soap and candle making. The old man kneeled with him and prayed earnestly for the boy and advised this, Someone will soon be the leading soap maker in New York. It can be you as well as someone else. Here's what my advice is. Be a good man. Give your heart to Christ. Pay to the Lord all that belongs to him. Make an honest soap. Give a full pound. And I'm certain that you will be prosperous and rich. Into the city, he remembered the captain's words. And though poor and lonesome, he joined a church. Of the first dollar he gave, he earned, he gave one-tenth to God. Ten cents of every dollar were sacred to the Lord to him. Having regular appointment, employment, he soon became a partner and later the sole owner of a business. He made an honest soap, gave a full pound, instructed his bookkeepers to open an account in which the Lord took and the first tenth of all the income went to the Lord. As this business grew, he gave two tenths, three tenths, four tenths, and finally one half, and eventually all of his income. This is the story of William Colgate. A.A. Hyde, a millionaire and manufacturer, said he began tithing when he was $100,000 in debt. I'm going to say that again. A.A. Hyde, a millionaire manufacturer, said he began tithing when he was $100,000 in debt. Many men say that they considered it dishonest to give God a tenth of their incomes while they're in debt. But Mr. Hyde agreed with the thought until one day it flashed upon him that God was his first creditor. Then he began paying God first, and all the other creditors were eventually paid in full. If a man owes you money, he said it would be wise business policy on your part to encourage him to pay all his debts to God first. By the way, A.A. Hyde discovered a formula for cough syrup called mentholatum. Years ago, a young man began a small cheese business in Chicago. He failed. He was deeply in debt. You did not take God into your business and you've not worked with him, a Christian friend told him. Then the young man thought, if God wants to run the cheese business, he can do it. I'll work for him and with him. From that moment, God began, became the senior partner in his business. And the business grew and prospered and became the largest cheese concern in the world. You ask what that man's name? J.L. Kraft, who became the president of the Kraft Cheese Company, which is now the Kraft Food Corporation, which owns m- multiple food products. W.L. Douglas, a shoe manufacturer, was nationally known at his time. From 1874 to the early 1900s, it became the largest shoe manufacturer in the world. It was right here up in Massachusetts. 
He was the first to have a chain of shoe stores. From his early struggling years comes this story. He'd been unemployed for, unemployed for so long, he was down to his last dollar. Nevertheless, he put half of it, 50 cents, into the offering basket of his church. The next morning, he heard of a job in a neighboring town. The railroad fare to get to that town was $1. He had a dollar, but he already gave half of it to God, so he didn't have enough to get to that town. To all appearances, it would have been wiser for him to keep that 50 cents so he could have gotten to that town. However, the half dollar that remained, with that half dollar that remained, he brought a ticket and rode halfway to the desired place. He was only halfway to his goal. Stepped off the train and began to walk into the town. Before he'd gone one block, he heard of a factory right away in town where they were employing working men. Within 30 minutes, he had a job, a salary of $5 more a week than he would have received if he'd gone to the other town. Next story. A young man accepted for the African missionary field reported at New York for passage. And I've read much more of this story. This man's passion and heart was to be a missionary, was to serve the body of Christ. This is all he wanted to do. And the woman he married had physical issues. She was very weak physically. So he found when he was examined by the, by the board that because his wife was not well, she couldn't stand the climate, he couldn't go. He was heartbroken. So he prayerfully returned to his home, determined what to do and to make all the money he could and use it for spreading the kingdom of God all over the world. His father was a dentist, and he started to work for him. And his father on the side had started to make an unfermented wine, which he would use for communion in his local church. So the young man took the business over and began to develop it until it grew and grew and grew. This man's name is Welch, whose family not just makes grape juice, but most of the churches that use grape juice for communion buy Welch's grape juice. This second to last testimony, this is a direct quote. Yes, I tithe. He was asked about whether he tithe. Yes, I tithe. And I would like to tell you how it came about. I began to work as a small boy to help support my mother. My first wages amounted to $1.50 a week. The first week I went to work, I took the $1.50 home to my mother, and she held the money in her lap and explained to me that she would be happy if I took a tenth of it and gave it to the Lord. I did. And from that week until this day, I have tithed every dollar God has entrusted to me. I want to say that if I had not tithed that first, tithed that first dollar I made, I would not have tithed the first million that I made. Tell your readers to train their children to tithe, and they will grow up to be faithful stewards of the Lord. Signed, John D. Rockefeller, Sr., founder of Standard Oil. At this point, he was the richest man in the world. It's reported by the end of his life he gave over $550 million away. But this last one touches me more than any. This is a quote from a book by Richard Wormbrand entitled Tortured for Christ. This is a missionary that was, went on the mission fields into a place where it was illegal to be a Christian and he along with his other missionaries were arrested and thrown in a deep dungeon. This is very brief. Richard Wormbrand of Tortured for Christ, that's the book, said that when in prison, listen to this, when in prison they tithed. And this was his quote. When we were given one slice of bread a week, and dirty soup every day, we decided that we would faithfully tithe off of that. Wow. 
So we're talking about tithing to receive things, but imagine when this concept has become such a part of you. I mean, in prison, you think, well, hey, you know, either God's forsaken me or, or I, you know, he's going to let me out. I, there's nothing, I'm not getting any income. But he was so, he was so passionate about this that they got together and they said, we've got to tie something. We can't stop tithing just because we're in prison. Imagine that. And all they got, the only increase they had was one slice of bread a week and a little bowl of dirty soup every day. And they decided we were going to faithfully tithe even that. So every tenth week, we took the slice of bread and gave it to which whoever was the weakest brethren among us as our tithe to the master. And we look at this and say, well, I don't know that I can afford to tithe. I want to share with you in closing, because these are nice testimonies from other people. But these are three quick testimonies from people right here this morning. Over the last number of years, we have faced many challenges. My husband's job closed his doors, and he was unemployed for nine months. We fell behind on our mortgage to the point that we were told the house would be foreclosed on. With God's help, we secured a short sale and moved into a three-bedroom apartment. We, at that time, we had a multitude of medical bills, credit card debts, during which we must confess there were periods of time we did not tithe. But we got to a point where we needed to get serious and return back to what we knew was right to do. My husband found a tithe confession on a church website, and we modified that confession and began to confess over our Sunday tithe every week. As we began to not only give, but confess and believe, this is what we talked about today, for certain things, my husband received a promotion with a raise. We were able to find a buyer for a condominium that I co-owned with my sister. And with the proceeds from that sale, we were able to reduce our debt from over $38,000 to just under $1,000. My husband was able to negotiate settlements of up to 70% for one bill and 50% for another bill. We've seen the favor of God in our lives in a big way and believe that we, as we put him first in our finances, we will continue to see it. This next is by a Christian businessman. When I was a young Christian, I gave, up, I gave 50 cents a week to God. Two years ago, I started tithing. Since then, the following has happened in my business. Between last year and this year, my gross profit is up 241%. My net volume is up 345%, and my net income is up 347%. My cost of operation has gone down 320%. My business is now ranked 10th nationally in purchasing power with Home Depot. One last one here. Uh-oh. I left out the most powerful one of all. It's a young woman in this church. This is in here. A young woman in this church who's a single mom. Single mom, very little income, and then lost her job. And throughout all that, she continued to tithe. When she was tempted not to, there were times when she said in that testimony she couldn't afford to do it, but she did it anyway. Said she remembered back early. It's so important to remember what God's done for you in the past. She remembered back earlier, years ago, where God twice gave their family a car. Just gave it to him. Somebody gave it to him. So she continued to tithe and continued to tithe and continued to tithe. And God began to turn the situation around. She got a job that began to meet her needs. She said it was incredible. She said when she didn't have a job, gift cards would just arise in the mail. 
People would come up and just hand her some money. Uh, uh, somebody would pay a light bill for her. Things began. See, God can use all kinds of sources when we're trusting in Him. When we're trusting in ourselves, we've got to figure it out and make it happen. But it starts with, it starts with putting Him first. When you put Him first, all of His resources and all of His ways are now available to you. When you don't put Him first, you limit what He can do for you. He wants to, but you restrict what He can do for you because you've taken His spot at the top instead of letting Him be. We saw in one testimony, He became the senior partner. He became in charge of this. When you put Him first, He'll take care of all the rest of it. If it's not happening for you yet, check your heart. Find out if there's something you need to adjust. And if you go through all of that, then you just need to continue to be faithful because God will show up. Not necessarily on your timetable, but He is always on time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your patience with us. We thank You that You're a loving Father and that You work in our lives and You're working for our good. And so, Father, as we've coming to the end of this study that we've had about your principle of tithing and operating tithing in our lives and the importance of tithing in our lives, Father, may something we've heard today, may your Spirit take something we've heard today and illuminate it to us that we may hear your voice, feel your touch directing us, prompting us, so that we may come to that place that you've called us to come so that you can, can do for us all that you want to do for us. We thank you for that privilege, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.